Well, guys, if you've got a Bible, uh, open to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Uh, if you're new with us, uh, when you came in, you should have received a bulletin. Uh, on, inside that bulletin, you can find the announcements. If you missed them at the outset of the service, you can also find a prayer card. Uh, we pray every week in our services for needs of the community, uh, ministries in our church, individuals in the life of our church. If there's things that we can pray with you or for you about, we'd be honored to do so. You can just tear that perforated panel off. You can take that card and you can drop it in the box at the kiosk on your way out. There's also a place for some guest information there. If you're new with us, we'd love to get your info so we can send you some info about who we are and how to get connected here at Redeemer as you search for a church home in our community. I also want to just take a moment this morning as before I jump into the message to say, um, way to go, Redeemer. I, I just heard that while I was gone, they were, the room was full. And so I, I told people, like, I just need to go away more often. The church would grow astronomically and exponentially, right? Um, but you also leveraged the time and uh, resources you had to serve at the Christmas tree lighting. Many of you were out there in the mud and a little bit of rain uh, and, the, and the cold, and you were serving hot chocolate and making s'mores and making sure people got on the train and saw all the lights. And, uh, man, the city reached out to us, and you guys answered the call. Well done. Also, this week we received this in the mail from Miss Mae Vernon Elementary just up the road from us. Uh, earlier this year, we collected a bunch of school supplies at the start of school uh, to give to under-resourced students and families in their school, and they just wanted you to know how much they appreciated your sacrifice and contribution to that. Um, so I just want to make sure you guys saw that. Um, if you know somebody who's not here this morning and they need to see it, you can send them to our website, our latest blog post called A Growing Footprint. Um, you can see some of the things that God has used Redeemer to do over the course of the last 12 months here in our community, and that's one of them. So uh, I just want to say well done. Uh, it's a blessing to serve a church that has a desire to make an impact on its community in real and tangible ways. So Romans chapter 4 is where we're at today. Um, as we continue this series in Advent, taking a look at Jesus. Uh, the first week we took a look at the fact that he's our eternal God. The second week we saw that he's our human substitute. This week we want to see that he's our risen Savior. Now, I know that at Christmas, you don't expect to hear a message on the resurrection. You're like, did you get your holidays a little mixed up, right? We normally hear about the resurrection at Easter, right? Christmas is about the incarnation. Like, I don't know if you know that. I know you went to seminary, but, um, but this, this Christmas, what I want you to understand is that regardless of what day of the month or year it is, if you're a Christian in the room, for our Christian lives, every day is Easter because he has risen on Monday, he has risen on Tuesday, and on Wednesday and Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and yes, on Sunday, he has risen every single day 365 24-7 and so it's appropriate to talk about the resurrection anytime but we want to talk about it this morning as well and a part of the reason we want to talk about it this morning is this is that during the, the this Sunday of Advent um, with our little trick candle up here the rose-colored candle is a joy candle it's a joy candle and so we light that candle the third Sunday of Advent to celebrate uh, the joy with which Christ has come into the world. In fact, we're told in Luke chapter 2 that the arrival of Jesus, whenever the angels show up to the, in the fields and they speak to the shepherds, this is what they say. They say, for, un, for fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born in this day the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news of great joy is breaking forth because Jesus is born. He's arrived. He's here, the angels declare to the shepherds. And in fact, that theme of joy is woven through many of the songs that we sing in this season, isn't it? Even the O Come All Ye Faithful, which we sang this morning, O Come All Ye Faithful, what? 
joyful and triumphant. We sing joy to the world, right? Joy to the world as we celebrate the coming of Christ. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Joy to the earth, right? The, 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 that he reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, rocks, rocks hills and, and streams repeat their sounding joy. Repeat their sounding joy. Repeat, repeat their sounding joy, right? It's filled with joy. Even O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Rejoice, rejoice, because Emmanuel has come to thee. Oh, it's a season of joy. It's that threads woven through much of what we celebrate at Christmas. And yet, at Christmas and every other day of the year as well, but at, some t- at times, particularly at Christmas, there'll be two joy killers in our lives. Two joy killers. And they fit together like a hand in glove. And they fuel and feed each other. And they're called shame and self-justification. Shame and self-justification. When you lose face in front of others and shrink back because of either you're ashamed of something that you've done or you're ashamed of something that's been done to you. And then self-justification. See, when you feel shame, what you want to do is defend yourself. So you want to list all the reasons why you're acceptable and why you should be approved of. But I want you to know that both of those S's will kill, it will, it will slay joy in your life. They will rob you of the joy that Jesus has come to bring. And so the way that we fight for joy this Christmas season and every other day of our lives is not only to know that Jesus came, but why he came. See, it's one thing to know that something happened. It's another thing to know why it happened. And this morning, I want to spend some time talking about why it happened and unfold two beautiful, majestic doctrines before you, the doctrine of substitution and the doctrine of justification. Because these two doctrines, listen, we, oftentimes we think of doctrine, right? This is what we think of doctrine. We think of doctrine is like something that you polish and put on a shelf in a museum behind plate glass, and you show up every once in a while, and you look at it, right? Oh, look how pretty that is. Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. That's unique. That's being preserved. But the Bible doesn't present doctrine as something to be polished and preserved and placed on a shelf, but as something to be practiced. Like to build the foundation of your life upon. And so if you want to fight for joy this Christmas season, there are these two doctrines of substitution and justification that we need to build our lives upon. And so we come to Romans chapter 4, verses 23 to 25 is where we're going to read this morning. But to get us there, you need a little context because... Verse 23 starts with a conjunction. You're like, I don't know why it starts with but, right? And so here's the deal. In the early part of the book of Romans, in the three, what Paul is doing is he's setting the stage as he lays out the human condition that we are fallen creatures who worship the created things rather than the creator who is to be blessed forever. Amen, right? We have rejected God's claim on our life. We've violated his law. We've fallen short of his glory and excellence. And we've defaced his image, the image in which we were created. And now, listen, diamonds always shine brightest against a dark backdrop, don't they? That's what Paul's doing. He's painting the human condition as dark as possible. He says, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're all shut up under the judgment of God and His wrath is being revealed against human sin. Until you get to late in chapter 3 in verse 21, where Paul, he drops another conjunction, right? In verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this speaking of being justified by faith alone in Christ alone as a gift of God's grace alone leads Paul in Romans 4 into a discussion of how we're justified before God. And he draws his, his conclusion on the basis of an illustration from the Old Testament in the life of Abraham whom, to whom God made a promise that his, his descendants would be like the, like, the, like the sand on the seashore. You wouldn't be able to count them. There would be so many of them. Abraham being old and decrepit as he was and Sarah having her womb having been barren and now she's up in age as well, right? That Abraham believed God even despite all the external circumstances. He believed God and God did what? He counted that as righteousness to Abraham because Abraham believed the promise, not because Abraham completed the law. And that leads Paul to this conclusion that we are not justified by works of the law, by anything that we do, but we are justified by faith in what God has promised to do and what He has done. That's how we are justified. That's how we're made right with God, acceptable with God, and approved by God. And at the end of chapter 4, Paul draws Jesus in and says, this, listen, the words it was counted, we'll pick it up in verse 23. There's the but. Right? Verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, for Abraham's sake alone. Verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He says it wasn't for his sake alone, but so that you would know as well how to be justified before God to be accepted by God, to be approved of by God. He says it comes through these two doctrines, substitution and justification. And if you're going to go to war against shame and self-justification this Christmas and experience the joy that Jesus has come to bring, then you've got to know, there's two things you've got to know and then two things you've got to do. I'm going to give them to you, give you the first thing to know, and then the first thing to do, and then the second thing to know, and the second thing to do, right? So if you're taking notes, that's the order we're going in. So here we go. What's the first thing you got to know? First thing you got to know is this, is that Jesus died by design. He died by design. Listen, the death of Jesus was not God's last second Hail Mary, okay? Listen, we're going to watch a lot of football over the next couple of weeks. Some of us will be huddled around a TV during bowl week, right? Just eating popcorn and chips and queso, that we're going to have to lose after January 1st, right? all that weight we're going to have to put off that we put on. Right? And so we're going to be huddled around televisions watching Bowl Week and the NFL playoffs. Listen, there's one common denominator between all those games that you watch is that when you get to the end of the game, if the team that's on offense has the ball at the opponent's 40-yard line and they're down by four points and there's three seconds left on the clock, Right? They're going to line up receivers, spread them out, and they're going to send them all as far as they can into the end zone. They're going to protect the quarterback for three or four seconds so he can hurl the ball into the end zone, hoping against hope that one of his receivers comes down with it. 
Now you know if that's what you're watching at the end of the game, things did not go as planned for that team, right? They didn't anticipate themselves being in that position. Because they started a game with a game plan, right? The offense had the first 15 to 20 plays scripted. So it was a game plan. They thought, this is how we can beat this team. We're going to give these plays a try. We'll adjust as we see what works and what doesn't work. And we'll kind of continue to build off of that the rest of the game. So they had a game plan going in. Listen, the cross was not God's last second attempt to save humanity from their sins, but it was a game plan from the foundations of the world. That he was working out in human history through the incarnation of his son. He died by the side. Listen, what, what, what Paul says to us in verse 25 when he says, Jesus, who was delivered up for our transgressions. The word delivered up is a passive verb, which means this, that someone else did the delivering of Jesus up. Right? Jesus was not delivered, and listen, he was delivered up for our trespasses. There's only one person who delivered Jesus up for our trespasses. It wasn't Pilate, it wasn't Herod, it wasn't Rome, it wasn't Jerusalem, it wasn't the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and religious leaders, it wasn't the Jews, God, the Pharisees and the Jews, the Bible, the crucifixion of Jesus. It was none of those. The only person who delivered Jesus up for our trespasses was God himself. It was his game plan, his In fact, Peter tells us that in Acts 2, 23, when he speaks to the crowds of Jerusalem, he says, Jesus came to earth, the second day of the Lord Jesus, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We're told in Isaiah 53 that it was the Lord's will to crush him. And in Matthew chapter 2, whenever the Magi come to visit this Jesus who had been born some months earlier, they bring in some gifts, and one of the gifts they bring is what? Myrrh. You know what myrrh was? It was embalming fluid. an embalming spice. So from the time of his birth, Jesus was destined to die. He died by design. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't by coincidence. He wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was in the right place at the right time for you and I. Now listen, he was delivered up for our trespasses. For our trespasses. Our trespasses essentially are this, our betrayals of God. The image of God that we were created in. In other words, God has said, here is how to be a full and flourishing human being created in my image. And we've looked at that and we spurned it. We rejected it. We rebelled and walked away. And so as a result, the image of God in us has been defaced. It hasn't been erased. It's been defaced. Like we've taken and sprayed graffiti all over top of this beautiful image that God has created. And said, God, I'm going to have things my way. I'm going to do things my way. Like that's the essence of sin, is the rejection of God and the exaltation of self. It's the essence of sin. So I took my son a few years ago to a Mavs game, and we, 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 we jumped on the dart line in... Uh, in Rowlett and took it down to the American Airlines Center. We went in, showed our tickets, bought some popcorn and some Cokes, and we went and sat up in the nosebleeds because that's what I could afford. And so we're sitting there watching the game down there on the court, um, and, and, and I, wish, I wish I was making this story up. But there was a couple sitting in front of us, and the whole game they were sitting in front of us. I don't know if they were on their first date or if they had been married for 20 years. I, have, I, I really don't know. Right? But they were sitting right in front of us. And like every five minutes, this lady would pull her, her, her phone out and she would flip her selfie cam on and she would just look at herself, right? And she'd fix her hair, 
right? Every time something happens, she cheers. She, oh, I gotta fix, like, fix her mascara, her makeup, her lipstick, her blush. She fixed her hair. And I kid you not, for three quarters of basketball, she was staring at herself in her selfie cam to make sure that her appearance was what she wanted to project. And listen, what she was doing physically is what we do spiritually. It's the essence of sin, being fixated and infatuated with ourselves. So much so that whenever God says, have no other gods before Him, we find our security, satisfaction, and significance in other people and things. So much so that when God says, love your neighbors yourself, we show partiality and favoritism because we get one-upsmanship from those individuals that we're partial and favorites towards. So much so that when God says, run from sexual immorality, we run towards it because we say, I'm going to have it my way, God. When God says, give, give generously, we keep. When God says, serve faithfully, we sit. When God says, speak the truth lovingly, we deceive or we flatter. When God says, order your life around my mission of disciple making, we tend to order our lives around our mission of money making. Listen, I don't know if this is hitting home with any of you. It is with me, right? So as we, because of all this, listen, we can never be good enough. We can never be good enough. We needed someone to be good enough in our place, and that's what we get in Jesus. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Now listen, this doctrine of substitution, again, is not something to polish and put on a shelf, but to go to practice with in your life. And if you understand this truth, if you understand this truth, then it allows you to shed the coat of shame. To shed the coat of shame. Listen, just like our first parents in the garden, whenever they sin, what is their initial inclination? What's the first thing they do? They want to sew for themselves their own garments, their own coverings, and they want to hide from God whenever he comes seeking them because they're ashamed of what they've done. And so they draw away from God and hide. And they try to cover it over themselves. But listen, if you understand the doctrine of substitution that Jesus was delivered up by God the Father for our trespasses, for the very things that you've done to deface the image of God in which you were created, then I want you to know that you take that and you go to war against your shame. Because what he took at the cross was shameful for you. He was despised and rejected. He was raised up high and strung out wide and beaten and bruised and pierced with a crown of thorns on his head and bloodied and made a public spectacle in front of the crowds. He lost face in front of everyone so that you might have face before God. And not have to draw away in shame and carry the shame of your unrighteousness any longer. You see, here's the reality. Many of us think, we think that what happens when we come to faith in Jesus, right, is that what we get is a do-over. Don't you know that's not true? It's not what you get. You don't come, because God is not a God of second chances. God is a God of lavish grace. And there's a difference between those two things. You don't come to God and God says, listen, you get to push reset and try again. And you get to push reset and, and, and eventually you're going to nail it, man. You're going you're to knock it out of the park. That's not how it goes. But when you come to God by faith in Jesus Christ, that he lived in your place and died in your place, no longer do you just come to God saying, God, I get a do-over. But what you get 
Listen, I, what, whenever I was entering South Africa and leaving South Africa, you pass through immigration and customs, and they take that little blue book that the United States of America issues to you called a passport, and they open it up to a page where all the visas are supposed to sit, and they take a stamp, and they stamp it, granting you access to the country and departure from the country, right? You're welcomed in here, and we're sending you out of here, right? It allows you to pass through those turnstiles. And listen, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God does not give you a do-over. What he does is he takes your spiritual passport and he stamps, done. Done. My, his life was enough. His death was enough. Done. And that regardless of your past, regardless of your history, regardless of all of your years, maybe even of addiction and adultery and abuse, of immorality and idolatry, years of gossip and slander and maliciousness in the way that you inter interface with other people, in all of that, God stamps, done. Done. Not a do-over. And so you can just shed the coat of shame because what God has done is He's clothed you with a garment of righteousness that is not your I wonder how many of us this year, as we look back over the last year, are wrestling with regrets and are struggling with shame that Jesus says you can be free from right now. This is good news, church. I don't know if you're excited, but I am. All right, this is good news. You're able to leave that garment you've made for yourself. So how do you do that? Let me give you a couple of things before we move on to the second point, second set of points. The first thing is this, is that you've got to come out of hiding. Some of us have been in, we've just been in hiding. Covering and concealing. We don't want anyone to know what we've done. We don't want anyone to know where we've been. But listen, when your shame was raised high and stretched wide at the cross, then yes, you may be rightfully convicted about things in your past, but that shame has been crushed and dealt with, and you're able to come out of hiding and be able to share with those who are around you. This is my past. I'm not proud of it, but Jesus has stamped done on my passport, and I've got joy. So you can come out of hiding. Right? And then when you come out of hiding, listen, instead of abusing the grace of God, Paul's going to deal with that later on in, in the book of Romans. He's like, which, like if, if it really is grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then, then why don't we just live it up, make life a party, and we do whatever we want with whoever we want, wherever we want, whenever we want, and then God will give us more grace. And Paul says, what? May it never be. Because somebody whose shame has been raised high and stretched wide on the person of Christ and they've tasted of God's grace and their shame has been nailed to the cross and they're able to put on garments of righteousness and move forward, right? Out of that done that's been stamped on their life, now they want to do, to honor God, to please God. Not to appease Him because He's already been appeased by His Son, but to please Him and honor Him in the way that we live. So we don't become abusers of grace, but we use grace as a motive to move us forward in holiness. 
So those of you who are bound up and burdened and in bondage to shame, listen, take the gospel and preach it to yourself as you come out of hiding. And then let that past that you're not proud of, let it propel you forward in those garments of righteousness to live a holy life as you now do because you've already been approved of and accepted by God because He's, boom, done. We've got to move. Get on the second set of points. We could talk about that a lot longer. Number two, the second set. The second thing you've got to know is this, that Jesus was raised. Not only did he die by design, but he was raised to make us righteous. He was raised to make us righteous. See, Jesus' resurrection was also predicted in the Old Testament. In Psalm 16.10, the psalmist writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And then in Acts 13, as the apostles preach, they take that verse and they apply it to Jesus. And they said, this is already spoken about in the Old Testament, that he would be raised from the grave. And Paul tells us why Jesus was raised. What does he say in verse, the latter part of verse 25? He was raised for our justification. For our justification. That we would be made right with God, that we'd be acceptable to God, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what he has done. Now listen, I want you to know that what justification is and what justification isn't. Justification is not having your record expunged. See, those of us, we tend to think that way, don't we? We tend to think it's having our record expunged or having our debt canceled before God. It is that, but it's more than that. Listen, consider with me. Not only was the sacrifice of Jesus in your place and for your sins, did it cancel out your debt with God, but consider, think about it this way. Let me give you a financial illustration. If you, if, if you owed God $5 million, I know I can't scrounge up that kind of, that kind of uh, cash, right? I ain't got that kind of bread in my bank, okay? But listen, if you owe God $5 million, here's how the, this whole idea of faith works. It's not that God looks at us and says, okay, your faith, like your faith, what you do is worth a million dollars, right? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just take, I'm going to cancel out the other four million and we're going to be good. That is not how God operates. Rather, what God says is, you don't have one red cent to contribute. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to deposit the entire five million into your bank account. Of everything, not only that paid a penalty for all the things that you should have done, but I'm going to... I'm going to give you all the things that you should have done, deposit them into your account, and then faith becomes the ATM card by which you access everything that God has placed in your bank account. Right? And He gives you this card to access everything that He's already given. So it's not just that your record is expunged and your debt is canceled, but positively, God deposits all of it into your account and credits it to you as if you yourself had done it. Listen, I used to collect baseball cards whenever I was a kid. Anybody else collect baseball cards? Yeah, yeah. But once again, the responsive thing, we gotta work on that. And so I used to collect baseball cards and listen, I went home a few years ago to my mom and dad's house and up in the attic they had these boxes in these bags full of mothballs to protect them. And so they were just these hordes of this stash from my childhood. 
All right? And so I had them organized and cataloged in boxes and in binders and some in protective cases, the ones that had a little more value to them whenever I was a kid. Which, by the way, none of the cards I have now have any value to them whatsoever because the market was flooded with them during that season of the 80s and 90s, and so they're worth like pennies on the dollar. You get stuff from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you might have something, but the stuff I got is pretty much worthless. But I keep hanging on to them. I'm not sure why. I think maybe one day the market will be deflooded and they'll maybe worth something. It's not my retirement plan, by the way. Um, but maybe my kid's college fund. But, but I, I used to collect these things, and on the front side of a baseball card, if you've never seen one, is the picture of the player, and he's either usually batting or kneeling down or he's fielding or doing some you know, baseball-related activity. On the back side of the card is a list of his career stats, right? And so how he did in 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, 91, right? he just runs down their career stats. Now, I want you to imagine, and by the way, in all the baseball I played growing up, I never had a baseball card. It saddened me a little bit. But I want you to imagine that you had a, your own baseball card. And on the front side, it's you, right? Just gritty, got the black under your eyes, right? You got the gear on, you're fielding the ground ball, you're crushing the double out in the left center, right? So you are on the front of the baseball card. And when you flip it over, it's not your stats, but someone else's. Now, in baseball, if you hit 300, like, that's, that's Hall of Fame type numbers for your career. I want you to imagine you turn over and then all of a sudden you see a batting average of 1,000. Perfect. Right, and every time this guy got up to the plate, he's crushing home runs, like out of the stadium. His fielding percentage is perfect. It's flawless. Never made an error. He steals, doesn't need to steal bases, right? But if he got on base, he steals bases. And nobody could throw him out. And so he's just unanimously, hands down, the best player ever. And his stats are credited to you on the back of your car. That's justification. That Jesus not only took our penalty, but he only died in our place, but he lived in it. So that all of his positive righteousness could be credited to us and that we have his stats. So when God looks at us, he sees one who is acceptable and approved of. Not because of what we've done, because of what he's done. And if you, if you believe that doctrine of justification, and you want joy this Christmas, here's what you do. You begin to sever the cord of self-justification in your life. Now, I can remember when my, my children were born, particularly Caleb, um, as my first, and I was in the delivery room there with Karen, and um, he, when he came out, he had the cord wrapped around his neck, so he was a little bit blue. It looked a little like, like a smurf. Okay, and so he comes out of the womb, and they get the cord unwrapped, and they clamp it, and the, the doctor hands me the scissors, and he's like, go ahead and cut it. I was like, are you crazy? I don't know where I'm cutting on this thing. He's like, no, cut between these two clamps, right? Here I am, the first time father, and I'm like, ah, my hands are shaking, and I go and I just cut that cord. Now, you've got to cut the cord whenever you're born because before you're born, while you're in the womb, that cord is feeding you. It's nourishing you. It's giving you all the nutrients that you need as it siphons it off of, those of you pregnant moms or expecting mothers in the room, siphons it off of your body so you're all tired and drained because you're, it, you're growing a person in your belly. Right? And so the umbilical cord is feeding that child. But listen, when that child comes out of the womb and is born, it no longer needs that cord. It's able to be severed and cut. 
And listen, I want you to know that whenever you and I are still born into this world spiritually, we're born as walking dead spiritually. But listen, when we're in the womb of the world, in the womb of the world, we need the umbilical cord of self-justification to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. To justify ourselves before everyone and anyone, including ourselves and God. And so we line up our spiritual resumes and, to, and all the things that we have done, and all the things that we've accomplished, and all the things that we've achieved. And we're just being nourished on this cord of self-justification. But when God says, like First Peter chapter 1, where he causes us to be born again to a living hope, according to his great mercy for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you get to cut that cord. Because you don't need that cord anymore. You don't need to justify yourself anymore because you've been justified by someone else. Listen, do you, are you with me? You've been justified by the work of someone else. You don't need to suckle on that cord any longer. You can sever it and have joy because you're no longer trying to impress anybody around you. Listen, and if there ever was a season of the year in which you're trying to impress people, this is it. I mean, some of you who are like hosting Christmas at your house with your family, you're like, well, I got to do what Aunt Susie did like three years ago, and she had all this big spread and right, had laser light shows on the house. and all, I mean, I got to impress, right? We got to pull this thing off. There was ever a season of the year in which we want to be impressive to others, right, through our Christmas card photos. Who could take the cutest photo and put it on that nice little, right, uh, eye stock image? Not eye stock, but it was called photo, photo bucket Whatever, whatever the company is that you order all your little Christmas cards through and send it out to other people. Like, here's the perfect little family, right? All the women have on nice, cute scarves. All the men have on their vests, right? And we're all standing in front of this holly bush that's decorated or in front of our Christmas tree, right? We want to impress others. If there was ever a season of the year in which we wanted to impress, this one is it. And listen, that desire to impress others steals, robs, and kills your joy. But you can sever that cord if you understand that Jesus was raised to make you righteous before God the Father. See, self-justification, how do you know if you're a victim of it? Let me give you a few ways. These might hurt. One, you shift blame constantly. Think about first parents whenever God comes to them and says, what, what's going on? And what does Adam say? Talks to them, that woman you gave me. What does Eve say? It was the snake, right? See, the natural inclination of the human heart and our fall in this position is always to blame someone else for things in our past or in our present. Do you find yourself shifting blame constantly? Some of us might be why our marriages are struggling. It might be why our, our relationships with our kids are struggling. It's because we constantly are shifting blame. Second, it also looks like seeking the approval of men. See, a self-justifying heart becomes hostage to the opinions of others we try to impress them. We've already hit on that a little bit. Third, you find yourself in constant comparison to those who are around you. Physically, about your body image. Financially, about your bank account. You find yourself comparing relationships. You think somebody else, right, because you got their Christmas card, they got the perfect marriage and the perfect family. 
right, morally, how much better you are than someone else as you compare. And we always compare downward, don't we? We never compare upward. People who are more upstanding than we are, no, we compare downward because we can always find somebody who's a little bit lower on the rung than we are to sit to justify ourselves doctrinally, right, that I'm the faithful one. I'm the one who adheres to true teaching and true doctrine. And all of these comparisons, they riddle our hearts with either bitterness because we haven't matched up we're, we're jealous and bitter towards those who we feel have or condescension as we look down on those that we feel haven't. This is all self-justification. We look at the sin in our lives and we justify it. Sometimes on the basis of our feelings. Our feelings. And not truth. And so if you're going to go to war and sever this cord of self-justification, let me give you a couple of things. One, you've got to own your mess. And you know what? If you understand the doctrine of justification, you're free to do that. You're free to be transparent and vulnerable and real. And just own it. Because you don't have to impress. How many of you this week, a relationship would heal and you would experience joy if you just owned your mess. If you owned your sin, if you owned your failure, if you owned your flaw, if you owned your rebellion against God, if you owned your contribution to the conflict, instead of defending and shifting blame. You gotta own your mess. And then second of all, you gotta rest. In order to do that, you gotta rest in God's approval that he has approved of you, he's accepted you because of the finished work of Jesus. He died by design. He was raised to make us righteous so that you might know his approval as he stamped on your life, done. Done. You're welcome. Here's a cloak of righteousness. Take off that coat of shame. And you don't need to suckle on that cord of self-justification anymore because all of my righteousness has been credited to you. If you will take those truths, this candle, it'll burn so bright in your life this Christmas and every other day of the year. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness and kindness to us in Christ. We thank you for the way you have made a way where there was no way for us. That your son died for our sins in our place so that we would not have to carry around with us any longer our shame. And while we may not be proud of our past, Father, we're able to come out of hiding because our shame has been raised high and stretched wide and laid on the person of your son. And we can stop defending and deflecting and justifying our actions because if we understand what was credited and counted to us, the full righteousness of your son, that we can own our own messes as we rest in your approval stop shifting blame stop comparing ourselves to those who are around us stop seeking the approval of others 
and just rest in the approval we receive from you. Father, for those in the room who are struggling with sin this morning, maybe they're wrapped up and caught in it like an animal ensnared in a trap. And because of it, joy is withering in their lives. It's fracturing relationships. It's pulling families apart. God, would you bring them to a place of conviction? Would your spirit open their eyes to see the destruction that it's causing? God, would you, would you cause them to feel a sense of shame over what they're doing? For some in the room, Father, they need to have a sense of shame over their actions. And for others, God, you need to assuage their sense of shame because it's already been dealt with. So, Father, as we come to the table, help us to come as those who aren't hiding anything and are willing to own our mess as we find your approval of us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.